So we're in uh, part two of this series. And here's the thing that is true of all of us. And I don't even need to know you or your background or your socioeconomic status. But we all have this desire somewhere in us to be extraordinary, to do something that matters, to um, move in a direction where what we're characterized by and, and what people see out of our life is something outside of the ordinary. And it changes at different seasons in, the lo- in our lives. It looks different, but we, we have it inside of us. Like when I was in middle school, almost into high school, I, I had this dream that extraordinary for me meant I think I can play in the NBA one day. And you don't need to laugh. It was a legitimate dream and, dare I say, expectation. And so I had this dream. Like, and if you're an NBA fan, late 80s, early 90s, like Muggsy Bogues was my hero. Spud Webb was like the guy. Spud Webb was my hero. And I'm like, I, can, I, I, have, a, I have a pretty, um, pretty, pretty legit jump shot. Like, I, I think I can do it. And so this was my dream. I'm going to do something extraordinary. And, and obviously, God, if you would just let this come true, then I would give you all the glory for it. Um, so one day, I'll, I'll never forget, I was with my mom. And my mom was the greatest fan of my life. I mean, she constantly was kind of behind the scenes going, hey, I think you can do anything. Speaking life, speaking vision into my life. I mean, the greatest encouragement and fan ever. And I'll never forget one day... Um, we, we were with a couple people, and I don't remember who they were. My mom was there, and she's just like, yeah, we are talking about something. She's like, yeah, maybe, maybe one day you'll play in the NBA. And I'm like, man, it's so great to have somebody that believes in me, that like all five, six of me, I'm going to make it to the NBA one day. And then just out of nowhere, she's like, Psh, yeah, right. <laughs> and if you know my mom, she's so sweet and like encouraging and um, in that moment, I'm like, that mom, that's kind of savage. Like, that, that was a real, I don't think you know how serious I am. And I, I think you just need that. You need your mom every once in a while to obviously encourage you, make you believe you can do anything. But I think you also need your mom to just go, it's not going to happen. You don't, you don't have the athleticism and ups of Spud Webb, um, and you're, you're not Muggsy Bogues, and your jump shot is not going to take you to the NBA. Like, you just need to be rooted in reality. But my point, so then I decided I'd become a preacher. Um, but uh, yeah, thank, thanks for that. But we, we have this desire in us, and it's not so much to do something extraordinary, I think, at the heart. It really is to be extraordinary. Like, think about the stories of people that inspire you and move you. Stories where, in some ways, they stepped out to do something heroic. Maybe they fought injustice. Maybe they were rationally generous in some way. But they did some things that as you hear their story and you get up close, it's, it's moving. It's inspiring. I think that's in all of us. In fact, I think that's the thumbprint of God in us. And so here's the thing. All of us define extraordinary different. But if you're a Jesus follower, Jesus actually said, hey, this is what it looks like to live an extraordinary life. And if you're not a Jesus follower, some of the things that Jesus said are still the ways that we define extraordinary 2,000 years later, even if you factor out the God thing. And in fact, one day Jesus was approached by a guy and he was asked a question and his language was, how do I get eternal life? But really it was a two-layered question because they believed, and we still do believe, that eternal life is something that starts in this moment, but it goes forever. And what this guy was actually asking was, how can I have a connection with God? How can I have heaven when I die? But how can I experience extraordinary life right now as well? Like, how can I, in our language, be my best self? Like, live out my purpose. 
And so Jesus responds to this guy with the language that we know and that's kind of the catalyst for this series. And everybody has encountered this, whether they've been around the church thing or not. Jesus said, love God and love your neighbor. This is the essence of what it means to live an extraordinary life. And here's what's so interesting about this. When Jesus launched this, in the first century, there was no ethic of love that was heralded as a virtue. It was might made right. It was, if you're extraordinary, love wasn't kind of factored in. That wasn't a part of the deal. And in fact, Herod was the most powerful man at the time, and Herod was considered extraordinary. And yet 2,000 years later, this will tell you the influence of Jesus' words, 2,000 years later, the only time you know about Herod is when he is a footnote to the Jewish carpenter from No Name Nazareth who actually launched this language to say, in the future, this will be the defining ethic, even among people who don't believe me. They may factor out the love God thing, but love your neighbor, those are the things that capture our attention. Those are the things that lend itself to CNN specials. Those are the things that inspire us at some level. And all of that was introduced by Jesus. I mean, think about it. Just even a couple of weeks ago, Billy Graham passed away. And even in his death, he inspired and captivated the attention of the world. Even among people who didn't believe in the God that he gave his life to because there was something extraordinary. It was extraordinary that millions came to Christ, but it was also extraordinary what he did on behalf of civil rights and speaking against segregation in the 50s and 60s when the church was behind the curb. Many have actually attributed to him having a hand in apartheid being ended in South Africa. And up to 99 years old, he lived an extraordinary life that was characterized by this And so even people who don't believe what he believes look at his life to go, there is something inspiring about that man because this is how we characterize extraordinary. And Jesus said, this is what it looks like to live an extraordinary life outside of yourself, to be your best self, to experience the purpose that you've been created for. And then Jesus also took it a step further, and we looked at this last week, and you need to go listen to the podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes, because if I had one message to preach, that would probably be it. But Jesus said this, that not only is this the means to really living an extraordinary life, this is what it means to follow me if you're a follower of me. John 13, 34, the night before Jesus was going to be betrayed, he talked about this, and then in verse 35 says, by this, everyone's going to know that they're my disciples, by This one thing, if you love one another. And in this statement, I'm not going to unpack it all, it's last week, but Jesus turns upside down our view of religion and what it means to relate with God in our measure of spiritual maturity. And this is not about salvation. We believe salvation actually is by grace through faith. This is about if you're in a relationship with Jesus, what is the measure of your love for God? What is the measure of your spirituality? And in the Old Testament, in the first century, it was all about going to the temple. It was all about the priests. It was all about the sacrifices. It was all about reading the Torah. It was all about the praise that, prayers that you prayed. And you could do all of those things and ignore people around you. And people felt like they were cool with God, that everything was great with God. And so basically, Jesus introduces to them in us that the measure of your love for God is not what happens in the temple or whatever our version of it is 2,000 years ago. It's measured by what happens around the table, what happens in relationship. The now invisible relationship with God, it's going to be measured by visible relationship with your actual neighbor. In fact, your love for God is authenticated by your love for your neighbor. 
There's no longer this game where you can do a few things that don't even like add up to actually engaging with people and think everything is good, but ignore what's happening to your right and your left. And Jesus is like, that version of self-centered religion, I've come to abolish that forever. Vertical religion is dead. Now, the measure and the test of your maturity and love for God is really seen in what happens in your horizontal relationships. It all comes down to that. And that's terrifying. Because it's much easier to go with some temple version of attending some stuff and reading some stuff and praying some stuff and whatever else you put in there, our version of sacrifices and going our way. And Jesus is like, oh, not so fast. I'm changing the game and this is what it means to follow me. And that is simple, but I'm telling you, that ain't easy to do. That's really, really difficult. But Jesus said, if you want to follow me, this is what it looks like. And if you want to live an extraordinary life, and I think it's in you, this is what it looks like. But can I just be really honest with you for a few minutes? Okay, one person. So I'm going to go with that, that permission. Like, let's go. We're going to be honest. And this is not hyperbole. I'm I'm not very good at this. Like, I'm the one with the mic and the energy here, but I'm not very good at this. And I agree with Jesus. I love Jesus. I think we've gotten it wrong. And that sounds kind of arrogant. So I want to say that in humility in many cases with how we're kind of doing this following Jesus thing. And it's very much not aligned with what Jesus actually introduced. Like, I'm all about it. And I believe that this is the way forward to live an extraordinary life. I want to love God. I want to love my neighbor. But I'm not very good at it. In fact, I'm not very good at it in my own home, if I were to be really honest with you. And I had like three examples I was going to tell you, but you can just take me at my word. I'm not very good at it in my own home. Like this week, I'm studying in my office at home, and my kids are coming in. I said I wasn't going to tell a story, but they, like, they start to get on my nerves, if I can just be honest. And then I start yelling downstairs to my wife like she's not doing anything. And, and the whole while, I'm like, okay, get out of here. Go find your mom. I'm busy. I'm, I'm writing a message on loving your neighbor. Get out of here. And I'm not even kidding. I I mean, I I was at my computer typing part of this message, and that whole thing is going on in my mind. And I get back down at my desk, and I'm like, I suck at this. And I'm going to preach about it. Like, the same is true of a lot of you. Like, last week, uh, some of you were inspired, but some of you left with a weight. Because you're like, I agree with Jesus. And I want to get this right, and I want for us corporately to get this right. And I know this is the way forward, but I I don't know if I can do it the way Jesus said to do it. And and some of you left inspired, and I I got really cool stories about what you kind of went to engage in after you left here. But, But here's my promise to you as well. If it's just simply you coming out kind of inspired, going, yeah, love God, love my neighbor, go, 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 go. Can I just promise you this? It's not sustainable. You're not going to last very long. You're going to do a little thing because we're challenging you to get around the table with your neighbors. And you're going to do that. And then you're just going to kind of go back to what generally happens in your day-to-day life. And and you're not going to be able to do it. Like there's so many obstacles to this. Like even as I think about this in terms of, okay, this is what I want to do. But immediately I start thinking about, okay, number one, and maybe I'll relate to a few of these, it's really inconvenient. Like, if I really take Jesus at his word that love God means loving my neighbor like my actual neighbor, 100 yards away, a face, a name, a story. It's inconvenient. 
Like, I'd rather love the homeless person, or I'd rather go on a mission trip, or I'd rather go minister in a different zip code, because when I come and drive into my neighborhood, if I'm engaging with them, it means they're always going to be there. I'm going to have to see them a lot, and I don't know what that's going to require of me. If I can just be really honest, I don't know what lengths that's going to lead me to in terms of my time, and it's just super inconvenient. John Hambrick wrote a phenomenal book called Um, walk toward the mess, and he says this, you know you're too busy when people are inconveniences rather than opportunities to love your neighbor. And that kind of stings. And yet, this is me all the time. Stephen Covey said years ago that you can never be efficient in relationships. It's just going to require more than than you want to put out. And, And yet, in so many cases, it's inconveniences for me. It's not opportunities. The second one, and this is the one that overrides everything else. I mean, I'll listen to a worship song. I'll hear myself preach. That sounds weird. I'll hear somebody else preach. I'm like, yeah, 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 I want to do that. But it's just uncomfortable. And can we just be honest? In our culture, the goal is kind of comfort. Like, that's what we're after. And so, like, we see, it, it feels like our inalienable right, super proud of myself for pronouncing that correctly, to come home, and if we've had a long day or whatever we're engaged with, I mean, it's our inalienable right to come home and Netflix whatever we want to Netflix and just kind of chill, and I don't want anybody to bother me, especially my neighbor, and whatever cold beverage, that, depending on your background, like whatever it is, I, I want comfort. That's what I'm all about, to the point of I mean, have you ever done this? Somebody comes to your door and you're military crawling into the kitchen telling everybody to whisper, hey, shh, so they don't know we're home. Duck, right? I haven't done that. I'm just trying to be real because I'm assuming some of you have done that. Then somebody rings the doorbell and you're like, we have a doorbell? What? Um, like, we want comfort. And so here's what we know about comfort. I know this. But intellectually, me knowing it doesn't seem to matter a lot of times. I know that I pursue comfort because it's comfortable, not because it's healthy. And in fact, let me quote John Hambrick one more time. He said this, you'll never meet the best version of yourself inside your comfort zone. Like we weren't wired for that. You have to step outside of it. And here's the thing that I think is kind of intriguing as well is there's no debate about this. We are the most entertained generation in history. In some ways, we're the most comfortable generation in history. But here's what's really, really interesting is that I think we're maybe more bored than any generation in history. I don't have any statistics, but I think a lot of us are bored with life. I think a lot of us, if I could just speak about the the church, about Jesus followers, I think a lot of us are bored with our faith. I think we're just kind of bored, and yet we're so entertained. I mean, I think about, like, what I grew up with and what we've got now. I mean, video games and, you know, playing football on a video game meant Tecmo Bowl back in the day. Nobody's with me on Tecmo Bowl, seriously? All right, come on. So that was it. And now, I mean, you have... You have all the information in the world on your phone. And all that to say, we have more information, we have more entertainment, and we're more bored than we've ever been. Because as Jesus said, it's all about engagement. We have not been created to be participants, but we have been created to be engagers in culture and with people. And when we do, something comes alive in us. I think if we really follow Jesus into what he's calling us to, you're never bored with your faith. And yet, I say all of that, my comfort trumps what I know God's calling me to do so many times. 
It's the thing that causes me to flame out. It's like, that's just too difficult. The, the other one is I, I'm out of control. So when I move in the direction of other people, like I lose control. I can't control what they're going to do. I can't control how far this is going to go. I can't control the nature of the relationship in a lot of cases. I can't fix anybody, of course. And in fact, nobody's a project anyway. They're people who are made in the image of God, but, but I don't know where it's going to lead. And so when you, come on, when you really engage in relationship, when you really move to love your actual neighbor, it kind of plays on that lack of control. And then the last one, just fear. I'm fearful. I'm fearful that I'm not going to know what to say. And honestly, I have this neighbor across the street. If I can be real specific for a second, he's a former FBI agent. And I can't see him without seeing Robert De Niro. Every time I see him from Meet the Parents. And I literally, like, I'm talking to him, and there's this fear of, like, I bet he knows stuff about my life that I don't even know about my life. Like, I bet he has a lie detector test he's going to try to get me to take in his garage. Like, I'm fearful. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to interact. In a lot of cases, like, this is just this thread of insecurity in all of us. Like, I don't know if somebody's going to reject me or not. And those, those are real, legit concerns, and we're, we're just fearful. And I think the other thing is to, to be like really real, is we have more connection than ever before and, and maybe the more lack of, of intimate relationship than ever before. And so it's easy to kind of create, craft this little facade and image that we hide behind and then portray on social media. When you engage with people, it starts to tear that away and that's fearful because I, I'd rather just hide behind the image. And so all that to say, there's a whole lot that gets in the way of me actually doing what Jesus said. And I believe Jesus and I'm on board with Jesus and I want to do this and I want to live an extraordinary life. But in a lot of cases, I end up getting entangled with these things. It's just inconvenient. It's just uncomfortable. I'm just too out of control and I'm too afraid. And it's why we walk out with a lot of messages. We're like, okay, this is it. Go do it. Love God, love your neighbor. And there's that thing inside of us. We're like, I, I can't. I mean, I can do, I'll do this like one time. I'll engage over here, but, but the extreme level to which Jesus is portraying all this in the New Testament, I, I, I'm not that guy. And, and here's the reason. This may sound heretical, so you have to roll with me for a second. Because if it's simply because Jesus commanded it, it's never going to last. As powerful as Jesus' words are, like there used to be these bumper stickers, God said it, that settles it. I mean, yeah, from a theological perspective, but not in our own hearts. Like if it's just, hey, Jesus commanded and said, and I really do get the weight behind it and I'm inspired and I'm ready to go, it's never going to be enough. And so Jesus one day addresses this whole dynamic that a lot of us feel and he does it in two connected stories that we never connect. And I may be wrong, but you've maybe never heard these stories connected in your life because they're contradictory. And so we tend to shy away from that. And we'll put one story in one series and the other story in another series so we don't have to deal with the messiness of it. But Jesus actually had a very specific point as it relates to what we're talking about. And so there's two stories. They're many times misinterpreted and they are contradictory. If people tell you, well, the Bible never contradicts itself. Yes, it does um, on purpose, but Jesus contradicts himself. And in this, he kind of unearths the, you cannot do this, and here's the way forward. And so here it is in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And if you've got your app, you can go to media, you can go to resources. And behind this, Jesus is just going to draw the point of, as much as my commands have weight to them, it has to be more than me just saying, love God, love your neighbor. That's never going to sustain you. That's never going to be enough. 
And so here's what he says. One day Luke, who investigates, he was actually a doctor in the first century, he carefully puts all the accounts together of Jesus' life and interviewed eyewitnesses. And so he says this. One, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus and said, teacher, and you guys know the story, most likely, even if you didn't grow up around church. He says, teacher, what must I do? Because it's all about vertical religion, not horizontal. What do I need to do? What do I need to avoid? What do I need to believe? It's all about me. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And again, there's two parts. He's like, how do I have connection with God, heaven when I die? But also, how do I live a different kind of life now? That's really the weight behind his question. How do I live extraordinary? And so verse 26, Jesus says, what's written in the law? And he replied, how, how do you read it? And then the lawyer says this in verse 27, the words that we're familiar with that are kind of guiding our series. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you're going to live. Do this and you're going to have life. Do this and you're, you're going to experience what I have for you. But verse 29, but this is the lawyer, wanted to justify himself. In the message paraphrase, find a loophole. And so he says, he asks Jesus, and who's my neighbor? Like, who, who are we talking about? Like, I, Jesus, I agree with you, and I quoted you the Torah, so love God, love your neighbor. But how far are we taking this? Like, who's, who is my neighbor? Like, where, where is this going to lead to? Could you, like, clarify? Because if it's just, like, love my neighbor, that's, I, I, I can't do that. And so then Jesus does what Jesus often does, which was annoying to his audience. He doesn't answer the question. Instead, he decides to tell a story. It's like, hey, that, that's a good question. Let me tell you a story. And everybody in the audience is like, oh, are you serious? And so Jesus tells a parable, and a parable is basically this. It's an untrue story used to illustrate something that's true. And again, you've heard this. People quote this who don't even believe in God and aren't sure about Jesus other than he was a good prophet. Verse 30, here's the story Jesus begins to tell. In reply, Jesus said this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by robbers. And they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, they went away, leaving him half dead. And then verse 31, a priest. So this is, as they're listening to this story, all right, spiritually elite. These are the guys we look to. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And at this point, they know, okay, because this is a story about Jerusalem to Jericho. So you know how you frame things in your mind when somebody tells a story. This is Jewish country everybody's Jews. They speak Aramaic. Okay, I got you. It's in my mind. Verse 32, so to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, and a Levite, again, is spiritually elite. This is the guys that everybody looks to. He passed by on the other side. And then verse 33, I think Jesus pauses in the story and gains eye contact and then smiles. But a Samaritan, and right there, and again, you've heard the story, they're thinking, okay, Jesus, that's a little extreme. That's a little socially charged. That's a little racially charged because no Samaritan would be found in that area of the country. This is a Jewish country, and Samaritans are not like. There is a feud. There is racial tension between them and the Jews, and the Jews actually call the Samaritans half-breeds. Like if a Samaritan was going through that area of the country, they would roll the windows up and drive quickly. They would never be found there. And so, gee, I don't know where you're going with this, but that's a little extreme that a Samaritan's coming in to that area of the country, and there's no way he's going to stop. 
But then another part of the audience who has kind of been around Jesus is thinking, I bet Jesus is doing that thing again. Recreates an anti-hero and the good guy becomes the bad guy because we hate Samaritans. And so Jesus finishes his story. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to, to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went and bandaged his wounds. And I'm telling you, everybody is gasping at that point of Jesus' story. Like, okay, Jesus, this is over the top. Where are you going with this? And so he bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine, which is incredibly costly. And then he put the man on his donkey and gave him to the innkeeper and said, look after him. And when I return, I'm going to reimburse you and pay you any expense that you have. So everybody's listening to Jesus. And then Jesus pulls out of the narrative. He ends the story and he looks at the lawyer and says some famous things that we've encountered before. He said, which of these three things do you think, or which of these three guys was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And everybody knows the answer to the question. We know the answer to the question. The expert in the law, smart guy, highly educated, the one who had mercy on him. And so Jesus told him, told them, told us, go and do likewise. And then that scene ends. And And the lawyer, though he doesn't speak this audibly, is thinking what a lot of us think. Okay, that's hard. And Jesus, by the way, you didn't actually answer my question. You told a story, but you didn't answer the question. And so then Jesus basically just goes, hey, you answered correctly. Go do that. Go do that. You got it. On point. Love God. Love your neighbor. Just go do that. And so the lawyer walks away, and he doesn't say it, but he's thinking, I don't think I can. And Jesus didn't narrow it down. That's inconvenient. That's uncomfortable. That's way beyond any human being could ever go. And that's a little bit fearful. It plays on my fear. That's a little bit, oh, I'm way out of control. And by the way, what does he mean by the whole Samaritan thing? Again, that's way over the top. That's way socially and racially charged. That doesn't help me at all. But he goes away to go, okay, I want to experience this. I agree with Jesus, so I'll try. And Jesus, though he doesn't say this audibly, is thinking, you're never going to be able to do it. But have a nice day. Go and do likewise. And then immediately from that point, Jesus walks away from the conversation with the lawyer, with all of his disciples around, and then goes right into a home. And these stories are never connected, but they're actually connected in the narrative. And Luke records them together for a reason, because Jesus, as he did so many times, is putting on display for his disciples and later for us of this is what it's going to look like if you ever move this forward. And so Jesus gets done with the conversation with the lawyer, and then he walks into a living room. And again, you probably know this whole story, verse 38. Jesus came and his disciples were on their way. They had just left the lawyer, and he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. And again, you probably know the backstory. Martha is like the typical type A, oldest in the family, older sister, get it done, get it done, get it done, probably loves spreadsheets. She's throwing a dinner party for Jesus, making sure the candles are lit, the hors d'oeuvres are ready on time. She's frantically running around like you do when you have somebody into your home. And then there is her younger sister, the spoiled younger sister, Mary, who's doing nothing, just sitting on the floor. And so, verse 39, she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what Jesus said. And Martha was distracted by all the preparations that she had made. And so she came to Jesus and asked, Lord, 
do you not care that my sister left me out here to do all of the work myself? And then she says, tell her, because I'm not going to do it. This is what siblings do. I'm not going to talk to her, but you go talk to her. Tell her, tell her, help me. Tell her to come help me. Like she's just sitting there doing nothing. And the disciples are taking this all in. And as Luke later begins to record all of this, and his first century audience is reading it, they're going, okay, we know there's a connection here. Jesus did the whole Good Samaritan story, and now he's in the home of Martha, and somehow he's trying to teach us something. And so basically we need to find the Good Samaritan in the story of Mary and Martha. So I bet Martha is the Good Samaritan. She is getting it done. She's the go-and-do-likewise kind of girl. And Mary, I don't know what she is. She's the bad Samaritan. I mean, Mary's not, like, it's embarrassing. And so verse 41, and you, you maybe know the end of the story. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and you are upset about a whole lot of stuff. But few things are needed. And actually, actually, only one thing. Just one thing that you need. Mary has chosen what is better. And it will not be taken from her. And everybody's confused. Okay, Jesus, Jesus, all due respect, make up your mind. Is it go and do likewise what you just told the lawyer? Okay, yeah, you got it right. Let's go do that. Or is it stay at home, sit on the floor, and listen to Jesus? Like, what do you want us to do? See, here's the thing. Let let me connect the stories and what Jesus is actually representing for us and showing us in terms of the way forward. Here's what the lawyer should have done. The lawyer was an educated man. He was a smart man. When the lawyer asked the question to Jesus, it was a twofold question. Jesus, how do I have eternal life? How do I have heaven when I die? How do I have connection with God? How does that take place? How do I achieve that? And so Jesus says, well, what does it say in the law? What well, says love God, love your neighbor? And she's like, just go do that. But the implication is because the guy's asking in part about eternal life, Jesus is going, here's what you need to do. You need to go love God and love your neighbor perfectly 100% of the time. Go. And in terms of just daily life, not just salvation, like you, 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 gotta, you, you gotta live this out there too. And the lawyer should have turned to him and just said these two words, I can't. I can't. I cannot do it. I can't ever be perfect or do this perfectly. It's ridiculous to earn my way to God. And I can't even just do this in daily life. It's not in me. But Jesus says, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to have a relationship with me. This is what it looks like to follow me. So here's the thing. Do you know who the good Samaritan in the story is? See, see, we always interpret it because in a parable, somebody's God and and then somebody's us, and so everybody's trying to figure it out. So we always read that story, and it's so inspirational. Yes, yes, yes. Love God. Love your neighbor. I'm going to be the good Samaritan. Go, 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 go. Let's have a campaign. Let's go after it. Let's do this. Let's accomplish this. Do you know who the good Samaritan is in the story? It's not you. It's not me. In fact, Jesus is carefully crafting this picture of what all of this looks like. And in the story, you're not the good Samaritan and I'm not the good Samaritan. You know who you are? And this may be kind of offensive, but just give me time here. Do you know who I am? You're you're the beaten down, busted up, cannot save yourself, cannot rescue yourself, cannot get yourself out of that plight, cannot fix anything. You're the guy on the side of the road who has no hope, who needs somebody to rescue. And Jesus is painting the picture of you are on the side of the road, beaten down by sin. 
infested by sin, inhabited by sin, and it's broken you, it's messed with you, and you have no hope to get yourself out of it. And then the picture Jesus is painting is, and then the law comes by. The law is all of the, hey, you need to do this to follow God. You need to not do this to follow God. Here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to not do. And all of us look at that and go, Okay, that just tells me how far I'm falling short of the standard of what God wants, but it doesn't help me. And so there the beaten down man is, and the Levite passes by, the priest passes by, and all of those are the commandments and the laws that say, do this, but don't actually give the power to do them. And then comes the good Samaritan Jesus. And Jesus comes to rescue, to pull you out when you could not fix yourself, when you had nothing to offer, when you had no way forward, when you were an enemy of God in your sin. In a lot of cases, didn't want anything to do with him. But the good Samaritan Jesus said, I want relationship with you, whether you're my enemy or not. I want connection with you. I love you. I want to make you one of my kids, one of my sons, one of my daughters. And it doesn't matter how far you've run. I am on a one track mission to redeem and to reconcile and buy you back. And so I know you can't help yourself, but I'm going to help you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to rescue you. And everybody in Jesus' audience is going, are you serious? That is so racially and socially charged and over the top. Who would do that? Jesus would do that. Because Jesus is the good Samaritan who has come to save and has come to rescue and has come to empower. And really what he's saying to the lawyer and to us is, listen, if you could live like me, you wouldn't need me. If you could live like me, you wouldn't need me. If you could fulfill this, if you could live this out on your own, then you wouldn't need me. But you can't. You have no ability to do this on your own. Love God and love your neighbor is never going to propel you into extraordinary living because there's nothing there that can sustain you. In fact, can I just, let me skip ahead. I just want to go to John 13, 34, where Jesus is commanding us, listen, this is the thing, love one another. And in John 13, 34, it says this, a new command I give you, love one another. And if Jesus would have stopped there, there would have been nothing for us to do. Okay, I'm going to try it. You can't. You're the beaten down, busted up man on the side of the road, and you weren't half dead. You were completely dead, spiritually dead, cannot bring yourself back alive. But here's the power in the command. I want you to love one another as I have, what's the two words? One more time, as I have, what's the two words? Jesus is going, you cannot do this on your own. You need to experience my love. You need to encounter my love, not just at salvation, but every day of your life. If you're ever going to experience the power and the weight of living out what I have called you to do, because you cannot love me. You don't have that ability. It only comes from when you realize my love for you that propels you to love me and then ultimately love your neighbor. And so I want you to look at my girl, Mary. I want you to encounter again, or maybe for the first time, my scandalous, 
ridiculous, irresistible, irrational, compelling, pursuing, no strings attached, heart-wrecking love and grace of Jesus that if you would ever encounter it would begin to change your life. And it is the only fuel and the only power for you living out what God has called you to live out in this life. You cannot do it without that. In fact, what he's saying is you, you need to get at a place where you can just be reminded over and over again. Jesus is like, you, you have to take on the posture of Mary. And this is not about getting into some place to go, God, am I good with you? God, are we cool? God, are we cool? No, no, no. All of that's been settled in Christ if you've placed your faith and trust in me. This is not about anything that has to do with what you do for God. This is positioning yourself every day to be reminded of what God has done for you. And it is the only hope that you have. It is the only hope that we have. And so Jesus is like, when was the last time you were moved by that? When was the last time that, that there was anything in you that rose up emotionally to go, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Are you kidding me? I'm a son and I'm a daughter of God. It's what Paul said, that God, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's just saying that God was perfect. And he lived the perfect life. And then through faith and trust in him, not only does he take our sin, he gives us the benefits of that perfect life. He gives us his righteousness so that when your heavenly father looks at you, he's like, you look like Jesus. You look like Jesus. You look a lot like Jesus. And you're like, are you kidding me? Do you know my life? Do you know how busted up I am? Do you know how many things happen behind the scenes and thoughts I have that nobody else knows about? He's like, no, 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 I know. Your behavior hasn't lined up with it yet. That's not gonna happen till heaven. But I'm telling you positionally, when I look at you because of what Christ has done for you, you look like the righteousness of Christ. You look like just my son and my daughter. You look like someone I am enamored with. You look like someone who I like, who I wanna spend time with. And there is nothing in all of creation that is going to ever be able to separate you from my love, not even your own dysfunction. And, and Jesus is going, you need to know that I'm never disappointed with you. You know why God can never be disappointed with you? Is because disappointment is the result of unmet expectations. That's what disappointment is. God never had any other expectations of you other than you are the beaten down, cannot save yourself, man or woman on the side of the road, and you couldn't do anything to warrant rescue, and you can't do anything to pay it back, but because of my love and my grace, I'm gonna invade your life, and I'm gonna save you and rescue you anyway. And nothing will ever separate me from your love. Hey, when was the last time you were moved by that? See, here's the thing too, that the longer there's been a gap between a real encounter with Jesus, and I don't know what that looks like, I'm just saying, when was the last time you were moved by that? And for some of us, let me just be real honest, and you may not come back, it's because you think you're a lot more awesome than you are. The moment of salvation is like, Jesus, I just need you. And somehow within five years of becoming a Christian and you play some of the game, you think that somehow you are not as desperate for the grace and love of Jesus. And I just want to tell you, you are still the beaten down man on the side of the road and you need Jesus and his love every single day of your life. And the longer there's a gap between the last encounter when you've been moved by that 
The longer there's a gap between that time and right now, the more you are tempted to move into a direction where you start to define love by how you love and by how other people love and not how God loves because that love is a supernatural love. And I just want to tell you, you do not love like God. You don't love like Jesus. And your friends don't love like Jesus. And, and so I, I've got to end, but, but I, I think this is the way forward. We have got to find our way to move back to a place where this becomes the message. This becomes the central thing. This becomes everything that we herald. You need to find a way to get around people who just talk about the love of Jesus all the time. You need to read about the love of Jesus all the time. You need to open up the scriptures and you need to get in. And it's not about you doing something for God. Those days are dead and they're over forever. You are complete and you are accepted in Christ. This is simply about rehearsing. What has God done for me? How much does God love for me? The character of God. God, I just want to know again. You need to read about it. You need to get in accountability groups around it. Can I just say this? The church needs to redefine accountability. Accountability is not just sitting in a circle going, when was the last time you looked at porn? That's great. You need guardrails. You need people to keep you accountable. But you know what real gospel account, account, accountability looks like? It's getting at a table or a circle to go, okay, I know where you're struggling. We're going to talk about that. Do you know in this moment how much you are loved and pursued by God? Do you know that at your computer screen, he is coming after you and his love could not be more or less than it is in this moment because it's based on his righteousness and not your performance? Do you know how much he is crazy about you in the middle of your porn addiction? We need to be in a place, man, where we're just talking about it. We're gathering together as inhabited temples, which is what the scripture says. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us. And this is something that has been devalued in 2018, but there is something special when inhabited temples show up and they worship and lift up the name of Jesus and the love and grace of Jesus is taught from the scriptures and we do it together with each other that God's physical manifestation comes and does something in our hearts. You need to make it a priority. If you're listening to me on podcasts, you're not getting that. You need to find a way to get in the room. You need to hear stories of prodigals coming home because you're a prodigal and you need to be reminded of God's love for you. And for so many of us, man, we, we've settled for anything but. And I think we need to move back to a place of desperation. And I don't care who you are. And I don't care how much theology you know. And I don't care how much you're patted on the back by other people around you. There's a bunch of us who need in desperation to get on our knees and say, God, help me to feel this again. Help me to understand your love for me. Help, help it to wash over me in, in the places where it moves me beyond my insecurity. It moves me beyond my fear. It moves me beyond my comfort zone. And it's not because I set out with some goal list. It's just because Christ's love is just compelling me. And I love you. And I want to hang out with you because you want to hang out with me. And I want to know about your grace and your love over my life. And that thing has just started to compel me to live differently and love differently. Not because I walked away inspired of love God, love your neighbor. Because I walked away wrecked by your love for me and it couldn't help but change me from the inside out and if if that begins to happen 
And I don't know this by experience. I'm not at this place in my life, but I'm telling you, this is my goal. All of a sudden, you will encounter God's extravagant, extraordinary love enough that all of a sudden, you'll start to live extraordinary lives. And it won't be what you think. I think we've misdefined it. It'll, it'll look more like ordinary acts of obedience time over time. And you won't have a big agenda. And it's, it won't be this, I, I want to be great necessarily. You're not even thinking about it. You just start to live humbly. You start to give stuff away. You start to move in the direction of people you would never move in the direction of, not because they're a project, but somehow God's love is just leading you. And all of a sudden, 5 and 10 and 15 years later, somebody comes to you to go, you're crazy, man. Why do you do that? Why do you give that up? Why do you sacrifice so much? I think you need more boundaries in your life. Why, why are you compelled to do this? And you're like, I I didn't even notice. I was just in love. Something just happened to me. And I couldn't contain it in a building or sitting in a row. It's just filtered into everything that I do. And so what would that look like for you? And what would be the answer to the question that we started last week with that I want to end with? What is loving your neighbor demand? And can I tell you the counterintuitive start to this? And and I should have given you this last week, but I wanted to back up and give you really the heart and the epicenter of where our power comes from. The start is, I, I think you just need to build some margin and you need to figure out a way this week and today before you lay your head on a pillow of, God, I want to begin to take a journey of rehearsing your reckless love for me. So Go to your app. There's a couple suggestions we gave you in there about a seven-day reading plan. Just try this for seven days <laughs> of getting the book, New Morning Mercies, or there's a link, and we put the name of how God expresses his love for us on version, where you just read that every morning. Create some margin in your schedule. Find some friends who actually talk about this. Get in a community group. Make this a priority. Get into nature. Find songs that you download off of iTunes. I don't know what it is, but you need to find a way to be reminded. And I think if you just take the step, God will meet you there. And it's not about an emotional feeling necessarily, but I'm telling you, I think we get to a place where if we really understand this, it, it does something in us. And so for the next seven days, would you just begin to rehearse God's reckless love for you, however you do that? Every single day, every single day you find a way. And then begin to step out with what we've encouraged you to do, to pray for your neighbors, to connect in some way with your neighbors. And over the next couple of weeks, that somehow we get around the, the table, whatever that looks like with our neighbors. And it's not going to be because they're a project and it's not going to be because we're all gathering together to go, go, do this thing. It's going to start to become the overflow of our love for God that is initiated by his love for us. And I'm telling you, that's where the power is to take this thing forward. And if we did, this is my dream for us as a church. It really is. If we did, if we reached critical mass, not because we have an initiative, not because we do message series, but because people just started to be, I don't know, invaded and changed, that it would begin to do something in our neighborhoods and cities, I'm telling you. We'd start to care about the 60,000 unreached people who are within a few mile radius of this location and you're their neighbors. It would start to bother you in the best possible way. And I think we would start to do things and move in directions that we never thought possible. And it is simply because Christ's love is compelling us. 
Would you guys pray with me all over the house? If you're online, I'd love for you to just join us in prayer right now. If you're listening somewhere, God, I have no idea where this landed, quite frankly, but I simply wanna be obedient to you and unleash what you've put in me and it is completely up to you what you do with that. And so do your thing in hearts and lives. God, I, I wish even in this moment we could just all sit down and talk like one-on-one and just rehearse this and, and have a conversation together. I, I just pray that, that you would lead many of us to take a step. I, Lord, I think for so many, and I'm not talking about me, this has been the common theme, but I, I just think we've settled for so much less. I think we're so satisfied with vertical religion where we punch a few things on the vending machine and we just think everything's good. And we haven't been moved for a long, long time. Something hasn't stirred in us for a long, long time about just the incredible, over-the-top, irrational nature of your love for us. And so I pray maybe even today, this would be a moment that would start something and start a journey in us. And God, we would be known for this in every part of our church, in every community group, and in every gathering of leaders, and every conversation that we have with what we do throughout the week. We would just be carriers of this message, that there is truth that says we are worse than we thought, and we cannot help ourselves, but coupled with that truth is the grace and love of Jesus that begins to unfold from Genesis to Revelation, that we, if we place our faith and trust in Christ, death on the cross, and the fact that he walked out of a grave alive, we have relationship that can never be be taken from us and we are loved by you. God, help that to begin to move us even today and then catapult us as individual followers of Jesus and as a church. And I just ask this, I pray this in the incredible, reckless love offering name of Jesus Christ.